This is Brooke Shannon I'm coming at you live from Aarhus, Denmark. I'm here with Christopher Green-Peterson, professor of political science at Aarhus University here in Aarhus, who has a new book coming out this year by or on Oxford University Press. The book is called The Reshaping of West European Party Politics in Comparative Perspective. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so let's just dive right into um, some questions about the book, which is really exciting. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the data that you use for this project? Yeah, the, the primary data source is uh, cap coding of party manifestos in seven European countries back to 1980, for a few countries a bit further back, but, but that's the core data set is too. I mean, party manifesto is a well-established data source for studying political parties, but what's new here is that we applied the... Uh, the cap coding scheme to to the party manifestos, and that's the primary data source I use. Yeah, so you've got to know that I'm excited about the cap coding yeah. scheme. Can you um, explain just a little bit about what cap versus the PAP, which our listeners might be a little bit more um, familiar with, how it yeah. compares? Yeah, um, I mean uh, the, the 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 cap coding, of course, is more so the tailored to the to West European countries. So there's a bit more. Coding scheme is a bit developed towards capturing some of the issues that are important to, to West European parties. Cool. So it's very like policy issue yeah. coded, yeah. 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 And and the big difference is probably compared to the comparative manifesto project that some people might know, mm -hmm. which have coded party manifestos for decades and have a very useful and, and well established data set. But what's really important is that unlike the cap coding scheme, this was never really an issue based coding scheme. This was a coding scheme set up to capture left right positions of parties. Mm -hmm. Which means that they have some issues, but there are also many issues that are not really covered. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a deliberate choice that, that to really study agendas and issue competition in, in West European party politics, you needed something more than the CMP coding scheme. Mm -hmm. So that, that was a really important starting point for the project. Awesome. And so in the book, you really set up the party manifestos as a great way to study party competition, analyze policy issues, and then issue ownership. Yeah. Um, so the U.S. analogous to um, party manifestos would, of course, be party platforms, um, just for listeners. But my question is, how, um, in terms of policy mechanisms, I suppose, how are party manifestos set up in this really great way to study these three? Yeah, I think it's really important for what you get out of party manifestos and what you don't get out of them. I mean, these are documents that parties produce around an election. Typically, it varies somewhat by countries, but most countries are rather extensive so that um, campaign programs or also the more ideological expressions of what, what the issues that parties find important. So they're really good, I think, at studying more long-term dynamics of party politics. It's a really a, a chance for parties to step a little bit back from day-to-day -day politics and say, what are the important issues that we want to focus on in a campaign? So it, I think found it really useful to study so the politics over decades. So if you really want to study an election campaign, you should probably study media data and go what actually goes on in an election campaign. But it's a really good chance to study so that the involvement of party politics over decades and use the elections as just a, an opportunity to study the issues that parties find important. And then they're right, I mean, they're easily available and then and, and, and produced over decades. But it's really that the end that they capture something that's a little bit... I mean, it is connected with, with the everyday politics, but it's not sort of produced by everyday considerations, which I think would, would give you a, a more short-term picture of party politics. So the book is really about medium, long-term developments of issue competition in Western Europe. I think the party manifesto suited that purpose really well compared to other data sources. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, cool. So 
I, my first like substantive question for you is actually just the title of your first chapter, which I thought yeah, yeah. was really great. Yeah. Um, what has happened to party politics in Western Europe? Yeah. And I'm wondering how has it changed and how has, is this topic changing yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. I think that the way, the reason why I started the book with a chapter on that's probably that, even though it, it sounds like a really straightforward, simple question, mm-hmm. it's not actually been studied that intensively. And one of the reasons actually data, because if you look at the CMP data and so on, there are some issues that you can study, but you can't really study the entire issue agenda. Mm-hmm. So with the cap coding, I was really able to ask this question. So how does the whole policy agenda look like? Not just mm-hmm. how has one specific issue developed, but what's actually the overall uh, picture? So that was, an, mm-hmm. I think, an important possibility with the data to actually ask this question and actually study it. And, and also what's really important is to study a number of issues compared to each other because there are a lot of studies which look at like immigration or the EU and how that I mean how that issue has evolved by itself. But if you don't if you're not able to compare to a total agenda, you sometimes overstate the changes and forget some of the, the, the broader pictures. And I think the the overall finding I find is probably um, I mean there are elements of stability and elements of change. Well I think it, I mean there's a big literature on the new what you call new politics, new second dimension of West European politics and the rise of immigration, European integration, the environment, these type of issues. And I think the story there is that it is true on a general level, but there's much more cross-issue and cross-national variation in which issues actually get attention. So that's that's one empirical uh, conclusion. The other one is that there are some, in a way, so traditional economic welfare state-related issues still play a role, but there's been a huge change in the issues that play a role. Right. So it's the rise of healthcare, education, these type of issues, um, at expense of issues like especially macroeconomic uh, issues, that that's another big change in in, in West European party politics. Yeah, that was fascinating to me. That um, while these traditional issues like macroeconomics and um, business regulations yeah. and things like this have decreased, they still take up a large yeah. share of the agenda. Yeah. They've certainly not disappeared. I mean, but, right. but especially if you the starting point for the book is the eighties, and if you look at many mm-hmm. of the countries then macroeconomic issues were really the, the, what politics was about. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the economic crisis after the the oil uh, crisis and so on. So macroeconomics was really the, the core of, of, of politics. And that has changed, but it's not that these issues have disappeared. Sure. And you can also see that they do come, they do rise again a little bit after the financial crisis, but not right. but not at the, to the level that, that you saw in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, it, as these issues decrease, the amount of attention for emergent issues begins as almost like a very small piece. And then within by decades, as you look at it, it's like they triple in importance and things like that. And while they may still be 20 to 25% of what parties are talking about, or this many, this percentage of parties discussing the issue, it really emerges as a huge change Mm -hmm. and shift in party politics. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, moving on to the more um, issue-based chapters of the book, um, you look at five big ones, which are immigration, environment, EU integration, education, and healthcare. And I think they're split up really interesting through like a reflective quality almost, how immigration and environment reflect each other as do education and healthcare, Mm -hmm. meaning like these first two are owned almost by by these like traditional left-right sides. um, But they're sort of forced on the agenda by these minority mm-hmm. um, parties, which really speaks to your previous work, I think, of how minority parties shape agendas um, mm-hmm. with Peter Mortensen here at Aarhus. Mm-hmm. So about immigration, um, how have 
Well, I guess backing up about immigration. Um, so ownership is really strong on this issue in the U.S. context as well. And I'm thinking that it's really emerged in recent years with um, with sort of international shifts that we see also occurring in, in parts of Europe, um, Western Europe included. But how have these international trends, and I guess I'm sort of subtexting like Trump and all of the mm, rise yeah. of the right wing <laughs> in the U.S., um, but how has this affected issues like immigration and the Western European agenda? Yeah, I think there are, there are two aspects. One is that, that, I mean, the increasing number of immigrants, I mean, you can see that in the finding that does affect, I mean, this issue doesn't come out of nothing. I mean, the, the, the refugee crisis in Europe and so on, these type of, the, of developments do affect the, the, the level of attention. So you can right. see it's rising in all countries, but there's also substantial variation in how this actually gets taken into party politics. And of mm-hmm. course, the, 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 the emergence of radical right-wing parties is important, but the, the chapter also tells the story that it really matters how more traditional mainstream right parties right. affect this, and, and what really drives them is especially coalition considerations. So if mm-hmm. you think about these big mainstream parties in Europe as really oriented towards winning government power, mm-hmm. then a lot of, of what shapes their interest is really does this issue to the emergence of radical right wing parties offer possibilities of winning government power in new ways. Mm-hmm. And if this is the case, they're actually also willing to try to push this issue much harder mm-hmm. than there are other countries where they they don't want to form coalitions and it's not possible to win government majorities, radical right-wing parties, mm-hmm. then then they're much less interested in really playing this immigration mm-hmm. card or really emphasizing the issue. So I think one, one thing that comes out of the chapter is really how important these coalition dynamics actually is for how, mm-hmm. I mean, it's an issue where I think that gets more attention and has a lot of potential, but this potential... Mm-hmm. How this is used by parties really depends on sort of the coalition dynamics. Mm-hmm. And the large par- parties are really the focus of the book as yeah, well, right? Yeah, These yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. ancillary parties are treated as such, which yeah, is... Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of literature on, on, on the rise of new parties and mm-hmm. the role, which I think is obviously important. But mm-hmm. I think what's really, what I really try to bring forward in the book is that it really also depends how they interact with the mainstream parties and interact also really means coalition politics. So there are also a lot of studies of how mainstream parties react to these new parties. Do they move left, right, or do they decrease, increase uh, issue attention? But I think what has been missing is to think this true in terms of coalition dynamics. Mm-hmm. With, I mean, a lot of it is simply based on vote consideration. So do we get more or less vote from moving left, right, and so on? But right. here's all the move. If we don't want to win government power, how does these issues open up opportunities or sometimes... You avoid issues because there are coalitions reasons why these issues are problematic. Sure. Do you um, do you expect or um, yeah? Do you expect with the data and with these coalition relationships, which of course have cross national variation? I know Denmark was really strong in this yeah. coalition relationship. Do you expect that this um, that this attention? in the party manifestos is a bit of lip service to these uh, or is it does it transfer into policy outcomes that are specific on immigration i think it does translate into i mean especially if you see the, the danish case which is really pronounced on immigration you can also trace that in policy developments mm-hmm. i mean the studies that look more more in detail at, at policy changes can clearly find that once parties i mean parties can't just talk about these issues just just in general they will come out with specific proposals mm-hmm. they, they when they emphasize issues they will say okay we want to do this we want to do that and then they, when they get when government power, they actually try to implement these policies. Sure. I mean, it, it, so so attention is really much policy and content, right? You can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you can sometimes talk very generally about issues, but but to convince voters, you need to be specific. Say we want to limit immigration, and we want to. Mm-hmm. Trump wants to build a wall, and, and people want to do other things. But they mm-hmm. they actually try to push this and try to implement it. And if mm-hmm. if they can, they will do so. Yeah. So it, it's really consequential once you you 
it, it's not just lip service. It, it has mm-hmm. implications once they win government power. Sure. And there's a few other um, explanations people have offered for this type of thing, party competition being one. Yeah. And in your in your book, it really shows that the driving factor is this coalition building. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about um, about the theory of party competition and maybe why? Were you surprised that it didn't come through as strong? Um, I mean, I, I worked with this before, so in a way, it was I mean, it was the, the story I wanted to tell about, right? Sure. But I think what, what I mean, it, it, a lot of it comes down to the motives you attribute to parties, and I think it's yeah. clear when you work with these more traditional mainstream parties that winning government power is actually quite a central driving force mm-hmm. for these parties. So I think what's really important is to think this through in terms of how, how it has implications for how they compete with other parties. Right? Mm-hmm. And of course they compete for votes, but they also compete for, for, for winning government office. And that's actually quite a strong driving force for many of these parties. So I mm-hmm. think that was really an important theoretical message to, to get get true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the institutional forces seem yeah. very strong, especially across nations yeah. um, and how they end up working together sort of in the international EU context, yeah, yeah. Um, which is pretty fascinating, especially for an issue like immigration that has these international, national, and even down to local politics yeah. implications. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, cool. So as one thing I was wondering, especially as I got to the later chapters in the book, is these new emergent issues, um, sort of the left version of immigration almost being environmental policy yeah. and environmental issues. Um, do you expect through coalition building and as they continuously get on the agenda and maybe become more adapted or adopted into these, po- um, into these manifestos? Do you expect these policies will become more like education and healthcare, which uh, affect everybody um, and are on all of these party issues. Well, I mean, I think that they, they, all of the parties pay some attention to them, but there's there, there's much more so traditional ownership around some of these issues, right? Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of so the electoral profile and so on, there's still a huge mm-hmm. difference, and they're also substantially different issues. I think one of the right. things that the book wants to bring forward is also that there's a lot of religious and political science that likes to talk about conflict lines and dimensions and so on, which makes a lot of sense, but they sometimes underestimate how issues are different and also mm-hmm. how this affects issue competition. And I think that's really important once you get to the comparison between so the healthcare education, but also the environment and immigration. They have, I mean, they're substantially different when you get to policies, and that actually has an implication for how parties can compete around them. Sure. Were there any surprises whenever you were looking at the policy policy specific, especially um, when comparing like the seven Western European countries? Um, I think one thing was that there are actually, I mean, there are cross-national differences, but there are also actually relatively strong cross-national similarities. I think right. that was one thing that, that, that came out in the book. There are some pronounced stories of some issues behaving differently, but there are also a lot of similarities in the way these agendas have developed. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that's also an important lesson that sometimes the variation across issues is even bigger than the cross-national variation. I think that that's also some of the one of the points I want to make in the book, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that the issues really matter. And, and there are some, mm-hmm. so the international general tendencies are some around some of the issues that do, I mean, if you look at the environment, I mean, there's been, I mean, the, 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 there were some environmental issues that were big in all countries back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s right. that have more or less disappeared. I mean, air pollution, things like that, that we don't really mm-hmm. discuss that much more. But now climate change and these type of, of issues are pretty general. And they're general 
forces that hit all these party system. And especially when you get to like healthcare, the whole technological change around healthcare is really an important driver of, of, of politics around these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, are any of these issues, um, do any of them experience like patterns of diffusion? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I haven't looked that much into uh, the book. I think it's a little bit different to disentangle diffusion from just the fact that these countries actually experience quite similar pressures or problem challenges. I mean, that, that they do actually, I mean, the environmental problems and, 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 and healthcare problems, I think there are a lot of, of course, they talk to each other, I mean, but but it, 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 it's also very much just the similarities and challenges they face. So if you want a healthcare system, the pressure you, you face from this ever-increasing number of new possibilities, new treatments, and and, and, and a new technology in, in healthcare. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably diffusion around policy solutions, but in terms of the fundamental pressure on these countries, I think that's not such a story of much a story of diffusion. That's more sort of similarities in the challenges you face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the problems and yeah. problem definition, yeah. even yeah. and things yeah. like this. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I think the diffusion discussion is much more relevant once you come to policy solutions and you dig more into mm-hmm. what do countries actually do. Sure. In, in terms of policies, uh, but if you to look at the then also the agenda setting phase and, and issue competition, I think they are. I mean, it, it, it's different forces than diffusion. Mm-hmm. So that will be the next book. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so one issue I think that's been as a short-term issue in the news a lot because of Brexit and things, but has really experienced a downturn um, as a trend with all of these countries. <clears throat> Excuse me, and cross-nationally as well, is EU integration. Um, And it makes sense that it would increase in the 90s and then sort of taper off in terms of attention just because the policies had been made and it happened. Um, And I think the book makes a really cool point that national parties put EU integration in their manifestos less just because the deliverables are harder. Um, Do you find that across across countries and then contrasting with the other issues, which are markedly easier to make a case that they're more national or domestic issues. Um, Do you find any type of differences, especially EU integration as a whole, rather than EU skepticism, which is sort of like owned by these fringe groups as well? I think it definitely matters. I mean, there are many reasons why mainstream parties are reluctant to, 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 to talk about issues. But one thing I think it's actually really, really hard to deliver on uh, issues, I mean, think about uh, the May government in, in the UK. I mean, how difficult it is actually to to promise anything and then get it through to the EU system. Mm-hmm. So I think, and this again, this is an issue aspect of the European integration that you really have to think about. And I think it comes, there's a lot of literature on EU integration, but one thing that it rarely does is to compare the EU to other issues, right? Mm-hmm. So think about through the EU integration as a policy issue that you can emphasize and what you get out of this as a party compared to, mm-hmm. to other issues like immigration, for instance. So I think there's a there's a pronounced difference in how mainstream right parties have, I mean, when you get these fringe parties or radical right-wing parties that emphasize immigration and European integration, I think there's a big difference in how you react to them because European integration, I think they've been in a way much less influential in most countries because it's really hard to for, for mainstream parties to take up European integration. It's much easier to take up immigration and, and promise policy measures that you can actually implement and do, whereas European integration, especially if you want to be in government, then it's really tricky to come out with a promise of we want to reform the European Union or we want this and that because the chance that you can deliver is really, really 
uh, smaller than that. So I think that, that that's a big, and that, I think it's really it's really interesting to compare to to look at the EU as a policy issue and then compare to to other issues. I think that that helps a lot in terms of explaining why it actually has has had surprisingly little party competition. It seems. Of course, Brexit is is I mean now plays a huge role, but I think Brexit is also the result of a very unique dynamic of, a, of this British referendum. Mm-hmm. I mean, Yeah, and especially because in the book, it's really interesting going back to the CAP scheme yeah, and all yeah, that, yeah. that EU integration is really within a few codes, but it yeah. has implications and consequences yeah. across major topics. Yeah, so yeah. it's really hard to narrow down yeah, without yeah. doing a control of like these massive data sets yeah, to yeah, look for an yeah, EU. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And um, I think that that's one of the, the, the EU is, I mean, I mean, I mean the, that's a challenge for the CAP scheme to actually handle an issue like uh, the EU. But I think for the, for the manifestos, it's maybe less of a problem because parties rarely talk so much in policy detail around European integration. So right. when they do talk about European integration, typically relatively general about serenity or the general future of the European Union. Mm-hmm. So that it's more challenging if you look at different type of data which are closer to the policy process. Here, that's more tricky to, to disentangle the European integration. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that wraps it up for the substantive questions about the book. Before I let you go, we have one last question for you, and that's yeah. if you can give us a recommend a recommendation for a work in political science that our listeners should should read. It doesn't yeah. have to be a new or just out book, but it can be something that left a lasting impression, etc. I think probably what I would suggest for Peter's, for people to read at Dinners and Estabilities in the U.S. by Palm Gardner and Jones again. I think it's, I mean, if you. I still think there's a lot of inspiration. You know, the book I wrote is not, it's very different in the setup and then and, 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 and the question it takes up. There's a lot of inspiration how you could do a book and and, and, and use the data sources uh, like the, the Cap Code manifestos in a lot of new ways. So I think there was a lot of inspiration for me in looking at this book. Though, in, in a way, my book is, is very different. It's still, there's still a lot of inspiration. So I still recommend people to, to take a look at that book again. Great. Yeah, actually, as a last note, while I was reading the book, just at the setup and the way the chapters are outlined, yeah. I definitely was thinking of agendas and disability yeah. as I read. I thought, wow, great theoretical chapters, the data, the empirical questions, and then these policy issues. It yeah. really feels like a yeah. Yeah. like a perfect complement to agendas. But I think that's the the, the, the project in the thinking that that even though right. the book doesn't test any of the the, the, the arguments directly, there's a lot of exploration how to think about politics as, in terms of at the policy agenda thinking. And I think that that's been one of the ambitions of the book. Cool. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Green-Peterson. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. (laughs) Cool.